Good morning. Last week we got a preview of Corinth and uh, Corinthians. And uh, we really saw, at least in a glimpse, that it's a rockin' city, topping the list of uh, Kiplinger's Best Places to Live and TripAdvisor's Traveler's Choice Award. Today I have uh, only time to remind us that the church was really quite young, under three years. And the perennial problem at the church was whether young or old is that they forgot who's the boss. And that's something that we can struggle with ourselves. And that's why throughout this letter, Paul calls the Corinthians back to the boss. That is the Lord. And uh, appreciated what Brian had to share with us this morning, reminding us how prominent, even in the first uh, nine, ten verses, is the word Jesus, Lord, and Messiah. Last week, we, uh, we saw that when Christ is our Lord, that is, when he's the Lord of my life, holiness, unity, and love characterize his occupation, his presence, his power, and he eclipses the self and exhibits the qualities and character of his lordship in a person's life. The character of the church is to reflect God's character. And that happens when Christ is Lord. But in Corinth, and in every church since, we drag the world uh, like mud on our feet into our fellowship with Christ. We, uh, we have that uh, grime on our clothes. And that's what was an issue at Corinth. Of all the weddings I have done over the years, the majority over 50% read 1 Corinthians 13. I want to encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13. But we read it as the love chapter. And it is all about love, but it's an amazing snapshot of the problems at Corinth. In fact, let me just read from verse 4 to 11. Love is patient and kind. Well, why does he tell them that? Because they're impatient and unkind. Love does not envy or boast. Why does he tell them that? Because envy thrives and flourishes, and boasting is a huge issue. Selfie is an issue. Love is not arrogant or rude. Pride. Kind of an overweening bossiness. 
It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And you'll see, as you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll hear echoes of the love chapter in, so to speak, the upside-down or converse of love in the behavior of the Corinthians. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It never ends. As for prophecies... They will pass away. The Corinthians were leaning heavily on certain prophecies in their partisanship and rivalry. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I'll stop there. Paul calls them back to the boss, to the Lord Jesus. And here in the very opening, we see the kind of boss that Jesus is. So if you have your uh, New Testament open to 1 Corinthians, let me begin reading at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, and brothers could be best understood, brothers and sisters. In other words, all of you. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or, I follow Apollos. Or, I follow Cephas. Or, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, okay, so, uh, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Okay, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. In other words, that's beside the point. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Factions, teams, (laughs) the church was uh, divided. It reminds me of high school. Um, For whatever reason, um, and, and maybe this is true of everyone in high school, but I desperately wanted to be liked, accepted, and a part of what was going on. And one of the ways in which I thought that I could be liked and accepted was to copy those who were liked and accepted. And so I did. I patterned myself after them. 
There was a big problem. There was a hitch. Uh, we didn't have the resources. My family didn't have the money that those who were liked and accepted, at least as I saw them, had. So when uh, they had these uh, lambskin jackets, they were lambskin on the inside and kind of a brushed leather on the outside. They were the thing. And I begged my parents to get me that lambskin jacket. And we looked all over, and everything was too expensive. And what they wanted to get me was a faux leather jacket. A faux leather. You know what I mean? Fake. Imitation. Well, that was the best I could do. So, okay. It was pea soup colored. And I wore that the first day, and I just, I just know that I didn't fit in. I stuck out. And then when winter came, it was uh, ski jackets because a lot of the kids skied. So they had these cool, they came down to just above your knees, and I wanted a ski jacket. Well, you can see where this is going. All through high school, that was my aspiration and desire. Maybe that's a touchstone in some way, some connection for you in relating to some of the dynamics of what were going on at Corinth. Being somebody, getting liked, avoiding embarrassment and shame. Paul calls them back to the boss, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, because when he's Lord, There's holiness, that is, that strange allegiance. I mean, Christians are to be a little bit strange. We aren't supposed to swim with the current. We aren't supposed to look like the rest of the world. We're supposed to look like Jesus Christ. And unity, that oneness causes us to drop our pretensions and our arrogance, and our boasting, and our specialness, because love takes its place. Holiness, unity, love, these are the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And it was those things that drew me to Jesus Christ and to the church, and why I'm talking to you this morning, and why I'm called a pastor today, which is a really strange thing. That was not on my radar. Because when the coldness, rawness, and brutality of the world is something that you experience in your own way, boy, that that Savior, Jesus, means everything. And that love, that unity, that specialness, because you become special in his eyes, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. But Paul says to them, and we pick, we'll pick this up in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Are you not secular 
in other words. And the problem with the church there, like the problem with the church, the struggle, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, as Paul puts it in so many of his letters, is a problem of having Christ, calling Christ Lord, but then living just like the rest of the world. I ran across a kind of a cute statement the other day. The problem with our church is that it's made up with individuals. I ran across something else that just said to the to the church of Corinth, retweet for Apollos, favorite for Paul. Or I guess if you were on Facebook, that would be like for Apollos and share for Paul. There are no gurus, gurus in Christianity, just Jesus and the cross. But when Jesus and the cross are at the center of our lives, it brings us together in a oneness that the world can't match and a love the world can't counterfeit. Today, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 2, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 5, we see that the cross changes everything. That's a lot. And that's a lot to talk about. But in a few minutes, I hope to kind of put it in perspective. The cross is shorthand for the message of the gospel. It's the epic tale of God moving heaven and earth. The quest of his son to save the world. Of course, this is a fairy tale to most. Foolishness. But not to those who are being saved, says Paul. God counts every person worth the price of his son. Just think about that. He counts every person worth the price, the worth of his son. Consumers look at other people and say, he or she isn't worth that. But the cross changes that evaluation. The cross says he is worth that. She is worth that. And that's something that when we get back to the boss, when we get back to the cross, is a compelling, overarching, constantly influential reality. And when it sinks into the depths of our hearts, and changes it. We see ourselves as worth the cost of his son, as well as others. And we love others like God in Jesus Christ loved us. There's the power. There's the power that the world can't harness nor understand. It's folly to the world. But God, his love, transfigures 
our notions of power, our use of power. Paul will say to the Corinthians, you're quite secular in the way you look at things. They look at personalities, you know, celebrityism. They look at powers and they look at proofs in terms of worldly terms. God's love is the way. I haven't seen Frozen. How many have seen Frozen? How many sing Frozen? I've got to watch Frozen. But there's a line, I'm told, in Frozen that goes like this, and it's quite pivotal. An act of love will thaw a frozen heart. That's power. That's the power of the cross. And Jesus changes everything. The cross of Jesus changes everything. And the way we look at personalities, powers, and proofs. In verse 13, Paul takes up this, uh, what I'm calling personalities, celebrities. And he asks the question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We live in a personality-driven society, a celebrity-driven society. And so are many Christians, and so were the Corinthians. I, believe, I belong to Team Paul. Well, I belong to Team Apollos. Well, I belong to Team Cephas. Well, I belong to Team Christ. I mean, this whole approach is wrong-headed. Part of the problem, and we know this of Corinth, I don't have time to elaborate. I'm hopeful that as we go through Corinthians, I'll be able to come back to it. We have nothing like it in our experience, quite like it. But uh, in that day, sophists, they were called. Uh, Sophist, the word sophist is derived from the word wisdom, Sophia. And they were meant to be, I suppose, wise men. They were intellectuals. They were philosophers. And it would be like a a national symphony coming to uh, Visalia and all the buzz and everybody wanting to get tickets and be at the, the, the preview and the before party and meet the conductor and be associated with all the power people. And the sophists would come to a place like Corinth and, well, like I said, I don't have time now to elaborate, but they were such a big thing. They were like rock stars. And people would present themselves as disciples. They actually gained disciples. They influenced the city. They often were hired for money to represent the city in embassies and discussions with other cities and important dignitaries and so forth. But they were 
exposed in ancient literature because they were often hypocrites. They were in it for the money. They were in it for the fame, the honor, the glory. They bickered with one another. They put each other down. And it was kind of like the tenor of the way things operated. And you see a picture of it. I mean, you can, it doesn't take a huge leap for you to hear that kind of interaction in what Paul says when in verse 10, he talks about, 10 and 11, talking about, well, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. People do that in church too. Not long ago, uh, and there are lots of web pages of this nature, but web pages condemning other Christians, condemning people who write books or do this, picking and finding fault in everything they say. And then, of course, you become tainted if you should quote or refer to one of those people on that person's hit list. People leave churches over this because they want to be associated with just the right doctrine. They want to be in the right, on the right, associated with the right. Beware. Beware when this supersedes the cross of Jesus Christ. Beware of the mission of fault-finding. Beware of the legalism. Your joy is never full. Your work is never finished. Your standing is never secure. When you slip into that fault-finding and legalism based on what you don't do rather than what you do, Legalism is based on subtraction. Grace is based on addition because it's rooted in the cross. Here's one way I can know that I have forgotten the gospel of the cross, the gospel of grace. When your sin bothers me more than my sin, Don't see Jesus through the eyes of others. I realize that sounds like a contradiction as I'm asking you to look at the cross, but I want to always nudge you and bring you back to the Word and to Jesus Christ and the cross. Don't see Jesus through others. See others through Jesus, through the cross. And beware of celebrity Christianity. Just happened to run across, uh, reminded of uh, something in Neil Gabler's uh, book, Life the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality. He writes about the birth of People Magazine. I didn't realize this, uh, but Gabler points out that People Magazine kind of co-opted and exploited the idea in Time Magazine, which was the reigning magazine of the day. I mean, that was, that was the mag. 
But they had a feature in there called Celebrity Milestones. And People Magazine took that notion and they turned it into an entire production. Expanding it to include anything a celebrity did. And the principal ordinary people are fascinated by extraordinary ones. And in 10 months, People Magazine exploded with subscribers. But he goes on to write, People, People editor Richard Stoley even devised a set of rules for a successful cover. And here are the rules. And just listen to this. Young is better than old. Well, I'm, I'm out there right there. Pretty is better than ugly. Strike two. Rich is better than poor. TV is better than music. Music is better than movies. Movies are better than sports. Anything is better than politics. And nothing is better than a celebrity who's just died. There are the values of our media. Entertainment. The power of celebrity is not the power of the cross. If you get the cross, then you run contrary to that way of thinking. And it changes everything. Jesus changes the way we look at personalities and it changes the way we look at powers. In verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Can you think of a story, a superhero, a fairy tale, where the hero helps and saves people using power for good, not for selfish gain? I think of Spider-Man, Superman, Clark Kent, you know, mild-mannered, wears glasses like me. Or even Prince and the Pauper. Yeah, it was an accident, but the prince, nobody thought he was the prince because he looked like a pauper. Now, there's always a disguise involved, a disguise of the hero until he dons his cape or his superhero outfit in order to do good and use his power for the gain and benefit of others. Well, there's always a disguise, and the disguise of Jesus is the cross. A Lord, God of the universe, creator on the cross? How absurd. We have no idea. I mean, I I could talk to you about it. I could rhapsodize about the horrors and the shame and the ignominy of the cross in the eyes of people. Nothing is more dehumanizing, demeaning, despising 
and turning somebody into a nobody. And there on the cross, according to the gospel, according to the good news, is the Lord, the Messiah. And what did he do with his power? He put it all in the dis- at the disposal of good. Put his life. Setting aside his glory. The cross is foolishness to others because the world doesn't want the cross, it wants magic. The dream of magic is to have power. The ability to make something of the world, whatever you want, without suffering, without relationship, without obligation, without risk. Our technological age is devoted to magic. And that's the hook. And that's the magic of the prosperity gospel. The gospel without a cross. Because that gospel is not about suffering. It's about making your dreams come true. You're a child of the king. Just ask the king and he'll give you what you want. It all depends on your faith. Speak words of power. Speak it into existence. Know who you are. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This is what Paul writes in chapter 4 to the Corinthians. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. You've left us behind. We've missed out on all of the rewards and treasures that you already have, he says. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You're held in honor. We, in disrepute, beware. Beware of the prosperity gospel. Beware of the magic that steps over Christ's cross to pick up the world's crown. The gospel of Jesus, it steps over the world's crown to pick up the cross. It's the Jesus of the cross that changes everything, and it's his cross that is the power because it is love, God's love, that is seen in those who bear it. Here are the cross bearers. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jesus changes everything because he changes the way we look at personalities, powers, and proofs. In verse 5 of the next chapter, chapter 2, he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But what he said before that in the first four verses is interesting. I'm just going to excerpt verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in verse 4, I came to you not with demonstrations of power, but the demonstration of the Spirit. I don't think Paul would be asked to speak at Hume Lake. I know, I understand how we crave for, we want heroes and celebrities in the gospel. We want people who can, you know, handle the world on its own terms. Show us they've got what it takes. And we get lax and we want to be entertained and we sit back and wait for them, you know, to just challenge and encourage us and woo us and But there's a point at which each one of us has to grapple with the cross of Jesus Christ and say, in Jesus, he is my Lord, him alone. But when we do that, it brings us together in unity and in love. And the world looks on and says, there's a power we can't find anywhere else. There's a reality that is the stuff of fairy tales. A lot of what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians has to do with his weakness. His weakness. He was a scrawny, kind of short guy, bow-legged, hooked nose, balding. Could he make it on the Christian talk circuit? Could he command the eight, ten thousand bucks that are required to bring in people like that? I don't think so. And yet that's who we gravitate to. Those that can and not to those that can't. Because we want heroes in the eyes of the world and not heroes in the eyes of our Lord. Here's what Paul says. I'm just to excerpt from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, and 12, and 13. Those four chapters, if you ever want to read that, you'll get a real sense of this. I'm just going to, real quick, in verse 10... Uh, 
Paul's writing is good, they say. It's hefty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak and unimpressive. And his speech, his speaking skills, (laughs) he's no orator. It's despicable. That's the word they use. It's despicable. In chapter 11, verse 6, they say that Paul is unskilled. And yet they say, we do what Paul does. We just do it better. And Paul says, they are full of themselves. They deceive and pamper you. And they measure and compare themselves to each other, ranking who's best. Boy, that sounds really familiar to me. And yet here in verse 3, Paul says, I came to you in the trilogy of shame, fear, weakness, and much trembling. That the gospel, that the cross of Jesus Christ might be seen for all of its truth and power and not be disguised in things that are contrary to what it stands for. Love, you see, love is distinguished and different than the world of selfishness. And in the world of selfishness, there's just no place for a cross. Magic, yes. A cross, no. Here's the key to proofs. Paul says, and this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, and I remember reading this as a young, a brand new Christian, reading through the New Testament. When I came to this, it really struck me. Paul says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? I think that's the question that Jesus asks us. That's the wisdom of God, to love more, and it's epitomized in the cross. But if we glory in the world, we'll just take the cross as easy money, found money. But if we take the cross to heart, we'll be transfigured. And then the cross changes everything. This morning, we are gathered around the cross and what it stands for. It's represented on this table in this bread and this cup. The bread representing the Lord, the Messiah, who lays down his life, who experiences suffering and loss in total weakness. He who is all-powerful submits himself freely and graciously to the abuse and scorn of others. For us, that we might see the power in that, in that love. It might captivate us, transform us, and change everything. We got to get back to the boss. That's what the bread and the cup call us to on a regular basis the boss. A boss like that. And the cup. A new economy, a new administration, 
a new constitution, a new way of doing things, a government totally different. That's what the new covenant is all about. And it's one of joy and peace and fullness in Jesus Christ. The search is over. The quest is finished. It's all completed in Jesus Christ. And yet the world woos us. No, you'll find real satisfaction, real meaning, real fullness in all these other things. Come back to the boss. Come back to the cross. Say yes to him again this morning when you take the bread and the cup. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the cross. How humbling it is. And oh, how we see ourselves in all of our true weakness and sinfulness. And then you take our chin in your gentle way, in your firm hand, you lift our face to yours, and you say, it's all forgiven. Follow me. Walk with me. Live through me. Know my peace, my joy, my love. Know my fullness. Father, that's what we celebrate in the bread and the cup. We praise you. And again, we confess, you are Lord. And we do it as we take this bread and this cup in the most earnest way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.